Take your Bibles, Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1, continuing our discussion in Mary's magnificent Magnificat. Luke chapter 1, and once again we'll start reading in verse number 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful passage. We've looked at it for, uh, this will be our third week, Lord, and I pray you'll guide us yet again. Uh, Fill me with your spirit. Help me today, Father, to preach the word as you would have it preached, saying only those things I ought to say and none of those things I ought not. Help me to be bold where I need to be bold and kind where I need to be kind. Help us today, Lord, as we look at the Bible to recognize it's the the word of God. It's, uh, It's not just the word of men. So speak to us today. Teach us, encourage us, help us, Lord, to rejoice as Mary did. Magnify the Lord as she did in this magnificent, magnificat. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You recall from a couple of weeks ago, we explained why this is called the magnificat. And it's because that in Latin, that particular phrase, my soul magnifies, is Magnificat, and hence we have given it that name. We didn't talk about it very much uh, as we were kind of introducing this song, but there's an interesting study that you might want to undertake if you do those things, and I hope you study your Bible on your own. But if, if you're so interested, there's, there's an interesting thing you can do. You could go back and you could compare Mary's song here to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, or to Miriam's song. After the deliverance at the Red Sea. Many Bible students see some similarities between them. Quite a few similarities actually. Especially with the song of Hannah. And it's interesting because it makes us think that maybe Mary knew her Bible pretty well. Because she seemed to be drawing on some of those things. Well as we've looked the last few weeks at this magnificent Magnificat. We've asked Mary a couple of questions haven't we? In week number one we asked her why. Why, Mary? Why are you rejoicing so? What has he done that brought such rejoicing to your heart? And we heard her reply. She said, he has regarded me. He has established my future. He has done great things. The same is true of you and me. All those things are true of us. He has regarded us. He has established our future. He has done great things for me and for you. We asked her then last week, who? Who is this that we're talking about? Who is this that has done this? And we heard her reply, it was he who is mighty, he who is holy, and he who is merciful. And of course, that certainly applies to us too, doesn't it? That's the same one with which which we have to do. The one that is mighty, the one that is holy, the one that is merciful. Well, today I want to ask her a third question. I want to ask her the question, what? What? What does it matter? What are the results of this thing? And she has a lot of answers to this particular question. Eight times in this passage she uses the phrase, he has. We're not going to look at all eight. We're going to boil it down. We're going to try to summarize it, and we're going to name three. We're going to, I think, see that we can summarize those things into three thoughts. He has brought judgment. 
He has brought prosperity and he has brought remembrance. Let's see if we can see those three things there. He has brought judgment. Look at verse number 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. I doubt that any of us would deny that this world is filled with injustice. Would any deny that? Too often the evil seems to prosper, doesn't it? And it often comes at the expense of the righteous. Too often some are enriched by the impoverishment of others. Too often those who deny the very existence of God, who made them, seem to be the ones who succeed in this world. Those who know and love God seem to be the ones who have trouble upon trouble upon trouble. One needs only look at the news and the news stories for any given day in America, and you're going to see that the enemies of Christ stand proud and seem to be doing so at the expense of Christians. Sometimes it seems like Christians are the most reviled class in this once Christian country. Would you not say so? But here, Mary's wonderful reminder here, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. In other words, he has brought justice. He has brought judgment. That baby that we sing Christmas carols about brought judgment. And 30 or so years after Mary sang this song, if you're having trouble seeing that in here, Jesus clarified it for us when he said very, very plainly in John chapter 9 and verse number 39, for judgment, I am come into this world. He brought judgment. He brought justice. We may not see it all yet, because the final and ultimate time we're going to see that is at his second advent, his second coming, we would mark it down. He brought justice and he brought judgment. That baby of which Mary sang will one of these days make everything right. Is that not a glorious thought? (laughs) Everything. The unfairness that we see so often around us will be gone. The evil ones in power today will be dethroned. The uncaring who enrich themselves at the expense of others will have to give an accounting. There will be justice. There will be judgment and it will be for all. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 33, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. In Psalm chapter 89, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. In Psalm 75, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. He has brought justice. He has brought judgment. And so Mary sings. She sings. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Now, on the one hand, that's great cause for rejoicing, is it not? How wonderful to think of that day when God will right every wrong. Repair every brokenness, judge every crime. Expose every hypocrisy, condemn every sin. It's a glorious thing to think about, is it not? That's what, we, that's what we're thinking about when we sing that old hymn, This is my father's work. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong. No, they do, don't they? God is the ruler yet. Hallelujah. We look forward to that day. We look at that baby lying in the manger, and we ponder the words of the Christmas carols that fill the air this time of the year. We listen to Mary's magnificent Magnificat, and they all say the same thing. He has brought justice, and he has brought judgment. He has shown strength 
with his arm. And he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. No matter how discouraging the news might seem that blares from our TVs, (laughs) it's superseded by the good news of Christmas. Amen. We ought to rejoice in that truth. But we also have to consider this another way, don't we? We have to think about this in another way. If, as Mary implied, he has brought judgment, then we have to look forward not only to the writings of the wrongs around us, but we have to look forward to personal judgment, too, don't we? Because if he has indeed brought judgment, he not only judges nations, he not only judges others, he judges me. He judges you. And so that brings a question to mind this morning, and it's a question that we ask a lot. Every time we look at the Bible, every time we think about these things, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? If the judge of all the world were to summon you before him right now, would you be ready? You see, if you know that baby of Christmas is your Savior, and the whole idea of him making everything right someday is cause for joy, you don't need to fear further judgment, because your sins were judged on the cross. When Jesus on the cross of Calvary said, it is finished, he meant the price for your sins was paid and there was nothing further that needed to be paid. Your debt was paid in full. Because you have accepted Christ and are trusting in him and him alone to save you, your sins are gone. They're buried in the depths of the deepest sea. They're removed an infinite distance from you as far as the east is from the west. There is no further judgment for sin because you're forgiven. Yeah, but if you're not in that number, And if you have not trusted Christ, and if you don't know that baby who came to be your Savior, then you do need to consider that he has brought justice, and he has brought judgment, and he has brought it to you. And so what will you do in that day? For one thing is sure, absolutely sure, 100% sure, you will not escape it. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you will face him before what Revelation calls the great white throne. In Irving's famous story about Rip Van Winkle, you remember that story? Rip Van Winkle was a drunk, and Rip Van Winkle would go around messing up and causing all kinds of trouble, and he would excuse himself whenever he did it. He'd say, I'll just not count it this time. But see, that doesn't work. You're not going to get away with that. Because we might not be keeping score. Rip Van Winkle might not have been keeping score, but God is keeping score. I read a story one time about Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a preacher. Most of you probably have heard of him. He was actually a a lawyer first, and then he became a preacher. Let me read this story uh, that I read about him. It says, Charles G. Finney, a young lawyer, was sitting in a village law office in the state of New York. He had just come into the old squire's office, and it was very early in the day, and he was all alone when the Lord began to deal with him. God said, Finney, what are you going to do when you finish your course? And he replied, Put out a shingle and practice law. Then what? Well, I'm going to get rich. Then what? I'm going to retire. Then what? I'm going to die. Then what? And the words came tremblingly from Finney, the judgment. And the story goes that he ran for the woods a half mile away. Spent the whole day in the woods praying and vowed that he would never leave until he had made his peace with God. He saw himself at the judgment bar of God. For four years he had studied law and now the vanity of a selfish life lived for the enjoyment of the things of this world was made clear to him. He came out of the woods that evening after a long struggle with the high purpose of living henceforth 
to the glory of God. And, of course, Charles Finney went on to become instrumental in the second great awakening, one of the great revivalists of our history. Are you ready for the next thing? The next scene in the drama? The next appointment with God? Can you answer that question? Then what? Can you answer it? One man said, There ain't no throne and there ain't no books. It's him you've got to see. It's him, just him, as is the judge of blokes like you and me. And boys, I'd rather frizzle up in the flames of a burning hell than stand and look into his face and hear his voice say, Well, are you ready? He has brought justice. He has brought judgment. We asked Mary, what does it matter? What are the results of this thing God has done? And we heard her reply, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has brought justice. He has brought judgment. But there's more. She said there's something else. Look at verse 53. He has also brought prosperity. Prosperity. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has set away empty. He has brought prosperity. There is an error that is preached across our land and perhaps around the world. An error that comes forth from pulpits and more so from television screens, I think, even than pulpits. It's called by most the prosperity gospel. Let me read you something about that. One man said a new gospel is being taught to many congregations today. This gospel has been ascribed many names, such as the name it and claim it gospel, the blab it and grab it gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, and positive confession theology. But no matter what name is used, the essence of this new gospel is the same. Simply put, this egocentric prosperity gospel teaches that God wants believers to be physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy. Listen to the words of Robert Tilton, one of the prosperity gospel's best-known spokesmen. Quote, I believe that it is the will of God for all to prosper because I see it in the word, not because it has worked mightily for someone else. I do not put my eyes on men, but on God who gives me the power to get wealth. Unquote. Teachers of the prosperity gospel encourage their followers to pray for and even demand a material flourishing from God. You ever hear that kind of preaching? I hope you've never heard it from me. I'm sure I've never said anything like that. But I'm telling you, if you listen to such a thing on the television, if you hear that kind of preaching, may I kindly suggest, as the pastor who loves you, turn it off, because it's not right. The Bible teaches no such thing. Absolutely no such thing. There's nothing in the Bible that guarantees that a Christian is going to have health and wealth in this life. It's not found in Scripture. The idea that if you simply have enough faith, God has to make you rich. Well... That's an error. It's not true. Would you not agree that the Apostle Paul was a pretty good Christian? How many would say that the Apostle Paul was a pretty good Christian? I would think so. And yet, he went without more often than not. He testified that he was in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Doesn't sound like he was getting much from God, does it? He went without more often than not. He was sick most of his life. And God refused to make him well. 
He said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God said, no. And he lived with it. Not only could he do little about the lack of his own health and wealth, he couldn't help others much either. He said, Trophimus, have I left at Miletus sick? Paul's a pretty good Christian, but he certainly wasn't an example of the health and wealth gospel. Now listen, don't believe everything that a preacher says to you. Check what they say according to the Bible, and that includes me, if you hear that kind of a thing. Only listen to those who preach the word. And any such false teaching, such as that prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or the name it and claim it, God, whatever you want to call it, it ought to be a sign to you that you need to turn it off. But wait a minute, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there saying, didn't you just a minute ago say that Mary was talking about the fact that he had brought prosperity? Didn't you just say that? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I did just say that. I did. And the fact is, That wonderful baby whose birth we sing at Christmas did did bring prosperity. And Mary did know what she was talking about when she said he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She was just saying the same thing that others had said. Job said it in Job chapter 5. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Psalm 34, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Thirty years later, Jesus is going to say the same thing in his great sermon when he says, uh, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So praise the Lord, he has brought prosperity. We just may not see it all right now. That's the difference between the truth and the prosperity gospel. Just as we learned that the judgment that he has brought awaits the second coming for its complete uh, fruition. So too does the prosperity he brought. But it is a reality, which we will see one day soon, very soon. Maybe you're one who struggles financially. Listen to the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that in Jesus you are rich beyond your wildest imaginings. He brought a wealth and a prosperity that is unbelievable. You might not see it now, but you're beyond rich. And one day, one day when we get to glory, we're going to find ourselves prospering in a way we cannot even imagine. Remember how we said that baby brought judgment and justice? That he can and will fix everything? That he can and will make everything right? That because of him we look forward to a day when evil is put down and right triumphs? That because of him we know there's a coming day when there's no sin, no evil, only right forever? Do you remember that? Well, because of him there's also that coming day when he's going to bring an end to want, to hunger, to need, to lack, to poverty. Because of him, there is coming a day when we will need nothing, for we will have everything in him. We will be joint heirs in him. And that's why Mary could sing, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Well, let's ask her one more time. What does it matter, Mary? What's the result of these things? You say it's brought judgment and justice, okay? It's brought prosperity. Is there anything else? And she replies, there's one more thing. He has brought remembrance. 
remembrance. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Mary is specifically talking here about God's remembrance of the covenant he had made with Israel. The covenant he had made with Abraham. That little phrase there, as he spoke, is from the Greek word elalison, which takes on a different meaning. It basically means he promised. As he promised. We could read that. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he promised to our fathers. Mary was saying he has kept what he promised. He has done what he said he would do. He has kept his word to Israel. And yeah, that baby in the manger was God keeping his word to Israel, his promises to you. That, that truth has never changed and never, never will. We hear the talking heads blaring from TV every once in a while, and they'll ask questions like, can Israel survive? Can Israel survive? We see her surrounded on all sides by enemies that have sworn to annihilate her, to sweep her into the sea, to remove even the memory of the nation of Israel from this earth. Since the regathering of Israel into the land in 1948, America has been her strongest ally, and there have been some who have said, as long as mighty America is there, Israel will be just fine. And now in our day we watch in astonishment as America has turned its back on Israel. We see the looming fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 14 when he said, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Can can Israel survive even when America has thrown them under the bus? Well, if my Bible is correct, yes they can. Because God keeps his promises. And Mary sings, he has kept and will keep his word to Israel. Other places say the same thing. Isaiah chapter 41, you Israel are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Isaiah 44, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Isaiah 49, 3, he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Some of us are planning to go to Israel in about six months. And I talk that up to everybody that I can think of to talk that up because I'd like more to go with us. And you know, oftentimes when I mention that to folks, you know what they say to me? I don't want to go over there. I'm afraid to go over there. Well, it's dangerous over there. I'm afraid to go over there. And yet isn't it interesting that that's the only nation on the face of the earth that God has promised absolutely to protect? I think we're safer there than we are any place else on the face of this earth. Well, Mary said that the birth of Christ was a reminder that God had not forgotten Israel or his promises to Israel. That was her specific meaning. But I want us to consider it finally today in closing in a very general way. I want us to think about the fact that the birth of Christ was a reminder that in general, God keeps his word. In general, God does what he says he's going to do. In general, he keeps his promises. Jesus was himself an evidence of the fact God keeps his promises. What God had said through his prophets, he he does and he did and he will fulfill. John Ankerberg says that there were 456 identifying characteristics in the Old Testament prophesied about what the Messiah would be. Now I confess that I didn't go and count them. I'll take his word for it. 456. It's got to be somewhere around there. And he said, Jesus fulfilled them all. 
Let me quote from Ankerberg. He told a story to kind of illustrate this point. He said, David Greenglass was a World War II traitor. He gave atomic secrets to the Soviet Union and then fled to Mexico after the war. His conspirators arranged to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. Proper identification for both parties became vital. Greenglass was to identify himself with six prearranged signs. These instructions had been given to both the secretary and Greenglass so there would be no possibility of making a mistake. The signs were, number one, once in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the secretary and sign his name as I. Jackson. Number two, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de Colón in Mexico City. Number three, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Number four, he was to place his middle finger in a guidebook. And number five, when he was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. And number six, the secretary was to then give him a passport. And the story goes on to say that those six prearranged signs work. Why? Because with six such identifying characteristics planned in advance, it was impossible that it could not identify the actual person. It was absolutely certain. And Ankerberg goes on to say how true then it must be that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. If he had 456 identifying characteristics well in advance and fulfilled them all. And so that babe in the manger was the Messiah, whom God had promised for hundreds of years. How do we know? Because he fulfilled every promise. He fulfilled every, project, every prediction, every prophecy. All 456 of them, if that's the right number. And Jesus said the story's not over yet. There are promises yet to be fulfilled. He said, for example, that he would come again. And mark it down that just as he has remembered his promises to Israel, he remembers that one. He is coming again. Soon. Very soon. Perhaps we'll celebrate in heaven this year our, our Christmas celebration because it could be any time. So the question again. Same question we've asked several times already this morning. The question always comes from these studies. Are, are you ready? Are you ready? We look at the babe in the manger and we ponder all these things about Christmas. We consider the history of that babe. How he grew to manhood, lived a sinless life for 33 years. How he spent the final three years of his earthly life preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of heaven. He went about doing only good. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He made the blind to see the deaf, to hear the lame, to walk. Raised the dead. Then he went to the cross where he allowed them to crucify him. He died. He was buried. Placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He rose from the dead three days later. He went about this earth for 40 more days, appearing to hundreds of eyewitnesses who scattered across the globe, telling what they had seen and what they had witnessed. And Christianity has sprung forth from those eyewitness accounts and now circles the globe. Jesus went back to heaven from whence he had come. He promised to come back, though. And now we as Christians long for and wait for and look for that day. It's a promise God has not forgotten. He has not forgotten it. He remembers just as he remembered his promises to Israel. And so the question again intrudes upon our thinking. Are you ready? Are you ready? Billy Graham said, The most often mentioned event in the entire Bible is the second coming of Christ. It's referred to more than 300 times in the New Testament alone. 
But remember that the end of the age need not be an occasion for fear. God designed it as the consummation of all things when the followers of Christ would enter his kingdom of joy and peace. As we near the end, how important it is that we be sure of our personal salvation and also that our attitude of expectation keep us very ready. Are you ready? You see that babe in the manger? He's proof that God keeps his promises. He promised the Messiah would come. He came. He also promised Jesus will come again and rapture his church away. He will do it. One man said, who will be caught up in the rapture? The believing will be leaving. Will you be amongst them? Are you ready? Oh, the magnificent Magnificat. We could go on and on and on with this. But Mary sang of such a wonderful truth here, such a simple truth, such a truth that we should think on and react to this Christmas season. She said he has brought judgment. He has brought prosperity. He has brought remembrance. And all how we ought to praise and worship him as a result. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, come, let us adore him. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior.